If you don't know me, if you don't know me, my name is Dane. I am the junior high pastor here at Crossroads Church. And uh, in light of that, I do want to start off the morning uh, with something I told my students just a few weeks ago. And we were, we were having our junior high meeting over Zoom, uh, and we were, it had just been announced that we were going to be uh, going through the book of James. And I was, I was so excited. Um, and I, I, told, I told my students this. I said um, that, that it's so great that we're going through James because James uh, is the best kick in the mouth you'll ever receive. <laughs> And, and that's, that's how it feels to me. It's like a well-planted roundhouse kick to the face, um, spiritually speaking. And uh, if it isn't for you, then either you're already dead or um, you're lying to yourself. You just haven't read it because James is a tough one. This is, it's very practical. It's very in your face. Uh, I'm massively challenged by the scripture. So when I was asked to teach this passage today, um, I was a little bit filled with dread not just because I, I don't like teaching here in this space, in this pulpit, um, but also uh, mainly because it is a, it is a massively challenging uh, pass- passage to me um, personally. So I don't like getting up in people's faces. I don't like it when people get all up in my face. Uh, and that was before we were wearing masks. Okay, <laughs> and so, um, so it's... It's, uh, it's something when, when the scripture does that to me, I, I do get uncomfortable. Um, so alas, but praise God that he will invade our personal space um, and give us a swift and kind kick in the teeth sometimes uh, when we come face to face with his word. So let's dive into it. Uh, last week we concluded James chapter 1, but it's important to note uh, all of these books, all of, the Bible wasn't written um, to be broken up by chapter and verse. And so uh, James was a letter to Christians. It all has continuous thought to it, even though there are different themes and we break it up in that way, um, which is helpful for us. <clears throat> it's important to read it knowing um, as we jump into a chapter, uh, everything that's come before, because they're all tied together. And so just as a quick recap... Uh, chapter one, full of some big, big concepts, uh, like how we're to face trials and what happens when we're tempted and how we ought to see trials, temptations, and good things as they come to us in all the complexities of our lives. And then last week we got to see how we must not be, um, or how we, how we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and how countercultural that is to our sin nature and even our American culture um, and so many things. So we kind of ended on the big concept of being a doer of the word, not hearers only. And that if we simply talk big, we talk the talk, um, but we're not doing God's word, then that, that religion that we then formed is utterly useless or worthless. And so if, if you, he says, if, if you think that you're religious, but you can't bridle your tongue, but you deceive your heart, that person's religion is useless. And he gives an example then of a pure and undefiled religion as being one um, of action, such as visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and keeping oneself unstained from the world. 
And it's actually this verse that kick-started um, our junior high, uh, the weekend event that we celebrate at the end of every summer. Um, and I'm, I'm hopefully looking forward to being able to do that this summer. It's going to take some strange shape. Uh, we won't be able to do what, we've, what we normally do. Um, and actually, tomorrow is the day that I would, I would, I was scheduled to go to summer camp with the junior hires. And so it's like, I, I saw that again on my calendar this morning, and I was like, oh, it's so sad. Like, our, our, worlds are, our world is, is upended in, in various degrees. But this, I, I come back to this passage every year um, because of, of it just being super meaningful to me and to the ministry. That what we do, it has to be um, real. It has to um, have weight to it. And ultimately saying, if um, you, uh, you, you need to do something with your faith. You can't just talk about having faith. You've got to do something with it. Our actions do indeed speak louder than words. So it's on that token that we enter into James chapter 2, where we begin our discussion um, this morning on the sin of partiality and also showing mercy. And again, this needs to be seen in light of the importance of being a doer of the word and not just a hearer, and our great need to put away filthiness, as James has written, um, and rampant wickedness, and to keep ourselves unstained from the world. So before we begin reading any of these scriptures together, um, let's pray and ask God uh, to put away those things and help us to put on meekness to receive his implanted words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You're good regardless of the circumstances surrounding us in our world. And Father, the, the, the heaviness of our hearts that we might have brought here to this morning, the various difficulties and, and trials, and um, Lord, you're above it all. You are good. And so we, we praise you. We give you honor and we ask as we, as we come to your scripture that you would help us see um, this scripture in new light, that you'd challenge us, Father, that you would um, bring about repentance in our hearts where, where that is needed, and that you would just soften our hearts to, to receive the instruction you have for us. We do pray and ask that you would um, be with the South Campus today, be with Sam and his family, Lord, uh, bless them and, and keep them, and uh, Lord, help them in this transition. And Lord, we just ask now that you'd, you'd bless us as we come before your, your scripture. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We're not going very far. <laughs> and that's because there's so much packed into that one verse. Um, and I almost feel bad doing this. I might be making a mountain out of a molehill. Um, but Pastor Ryan last week pointed out the language uh, that James uses to speak to the Christians. He refers to them as brothers or in uh, chapter 1, verse 19, beloved brothers. And he's going he's gonna to continue to use that language throughout this letter. And I do think it's important because James, as he was writing this, he loves the brothers and sisters. 
Um, and that's who James is speaking to. It's his brothers and sisters in Christ, those in Christianity. And sometimes brothers can get a little abrasive with their siblings. Maybe you've experienced that. I never had a brother. I have three sisters. And I could get abrasive with them. I could be just straight up with them and they, they could do that with me. And I think the closer you are together, um, the, the freer you are in, in what you're, you're about to say. And I think that James oftentimes just says it like it is. And so that's, that's what we get here is he says, my brothers show no partiality. And partiality, the, the definition of that, you guys are probably very familiar, um, but unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another, also called favoritism. And I, I think that's something we're, we're familiar with. Um, this command to not show partiality is seemingly impossible for us to do. Some of us are better at it than others. Some of us do this more easily than others. But the verse doesn't end there, and I'm thankful that it doesn't. Uh, it actually gives us a little bit more um, than just a seemingly impossible command. So it says, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And that doesn't really let us off the hook at all. It actually makes it harder and easier at the same time. What I mean by that is when he says, as you hold the faith or as you walk in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're in this room, I can't necessarily um, assume that you are of the faith, that you walk in faith. But I can assume that probably most of you are. And so he's, he's writing to us saying, if you are a Christian, um, then you confess him, you confess Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You believe it, um, you live it, albeit not very well sometimes, uh, but you are one who holds the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But who is he? And that's the important part here. He refers to him as the Lord of glory. He is the Lord of glory. All glory is owed to him. He gets it all. It belongs to him. All the praise, adulation, all exaltation, all good and things worthy of praise belong to Jesus. He is the king the ruler, the Lord of glory. And remembering that, remembering who he is, actually does help us with this so much. Because even though he's the Lord of glory, what does he do? What does he do? How did he come here? He came as, as a baby into poverty and simplicity in an age that if we were all transported back there into time, we'd probably all just die of disappointment and of, because of our general softness, right? Like we wouldn't survive because of how comfortable we've, we've become in our day and age. Be like, I want my indoor plumbing, right? Like Jesus had none of, none of the, the nice things that we experience um, in our day. Uh, so anyway, favoritism. He grows up a carpenter's son in a backwater town in a nowhere country. And when he finally does arrive on the scene as a teacher and as a prophet, what does he do? Where does he go? Well, he actually, he goes to rich men's homes and he also goes to the poorest of the poor. 
And he, all of them, not, nobody can escape his message to repent and to trust, believe in him. I think of how he treated the woman in Luke chapter 7. You might be familiar with the story where he was invited into a rich Pharisee's home. And a woman came who was a known sinner, and she came and she um, started anointing his feet with oil and her tears and wiping his feet. And all of the, the rich Pharisees in the room were looking like, if you were a prophet, you'd know who that woman is, and you wouldn't let her get anywhere near us. And Jesus rebukes them. He wasn't about to treat that woman any differently than, than those men in the room. Nobody escapes his call to repentance of sin and to place their faith in him. So who is he? He's the Lord of glory. And it's easier to see him as that now because now he's sitting at the right hand of God, high and lifted up. And we know he will come again in power and prestige to rule and reign forever and always. And it's important to know that that he is the Lord of glory in that way as well. That way when we're visited or invited by that, that rich or wealthy or important person, you aren't taken aback. Like, oh, wow, this person's really amazing. Because you know the real Lord of glory. And you know that anybody on this earth doesn't hold a candle to the, the glory of Jesus. Knowing who he is helps us remain gain some balance in this. Or, the other side was when the homeless person, dirty and smelly, approaches us. We don't recoil because we also know how our Lord of glory would have handled that situation and how he lived and looked and probably oftentimes smelled while he was here on earth as our, our savior. Knowing the Lord of glory is so important to this discussion. And the example that now James brings into it begins in verse two. So let's keep reading. It says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and says, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I think it's fairly easy for us to, to get this, to understand this. I don't want to belabor it. If we make distinctions amongst ourselves, meaning I like you because you do this, but I discount you because you don't. Or I, I like you, I'm going to treat you better because you have this, and I'm not going to treat you better um, or like that because you don't. We get that. Um, now, if we, if we make distinctions amongst ourselves, um, he says you're judges with evil thoughts. Now, the text uses the outward appearance of clothing and jewelry or essential you know, wealth as the example of this. But you can take this to many other levels and areas as well. We as humanity are great at making distinctions amongst ourselves, aren't we? We, we have perfected this over the years. 
Um, every culture does this to some degree or another. Um, and it's easy for us to look over at places, for instance, like India, where there is a literal class system still in effect. Um, there's a whole class of people called untouchables, where the, the first class, the wealthy, um, aren't even, you know, they don't even allow themselves to touch them or to look at them uh, without disdain. And we look at that and we think, well, that's a tragedy. That's evil. That's straight up demonic. But then when we look at our own society and we make distinctions and classes over everything, anything, the dumbest of things half of the time, we accept it. So all y'all who made a distinction and thought, great, it's a junior high pastor who they're throwing in front of me today. (laughs) Judges with evil thoughts. (laughs) Okay? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. But we, we are, we're so divided. We're so divided in our country, it's sickening. Think about it. Republicans look down their noses at Democrats as if you substitute the crap for an N and you get demons. Okay? <laughs> Democrats looking at Republicans like they're soulless stormtroopers ready to carry out Order 66 on the Jedi at any moment. Okay? Some of you got that, Star Wars fans. <laughs> but in our country... Um, it's both. It's both. If you, if you vaccinate your kids, you're an illiterate, wicked parent. And if you don't, then you're a, I don't even know, you're a tinfoil hat wearing the you know, menace to society. Right? We have both going on right now. Very recently, we've been forced to choose between giving support to either black or blue. As if it cannot possibly be both. That is the attitude of our country right now. On a lighter note, Apple's made billions of dollars. Some of you are very familiar with these commercials. They're the most hilarious commercials. Depicting the difference between Mac and PC users. And they have made billions over that. And I am constantly in conversations over whether iPhone and Android, which is truly better. And those make my wife's blood boil is probably why I bring it up. (laughs) I mean, we distinguish between mask or no mask today, people. We do. Right? We make distinctions over anything and everything. And then we treat people accordingly. That is not a new problem for today. That was going on 2,000 years ago when James was writing this. It's been going on in every little way, every nook and cranny that we can come up with, a way to distinguish ourselves against someone else and become a judge over them. We're very divided. It's the reason why there's so many Christian denominations. We don't escape this, do we? Um, some of you are familiar with this. Um, you, you, you're probably familiar with the number that I've, I've heard. I just read an article on it this week. Um, There are supposedly 33,000 Christian denominations, okay? Now, I looked at at that list. It's pretty easy. You look at that list, and you you see how they're all summarized or whatever. And I could tell you without doubt that at least 22,000 of those have nothing to do with Christianity, but they're lumped in there. Every, Every denomination that's ever been made that's a classic cult, every fly in the face 
of Scripture teaching, every demonic, twisted version of Christianity that's ever been formed has been lumped into that number. To, to show one, one day to one of my, my past students how easy it is to create a cult, we, sit there, we sat there in the room using the Bible, using like the Bible as our, our you know, like foundation. We could say, we could create a religion based off of mermaids in the Bible. Like that. Took nothing. And if I got 100 people to join my crazy religion, then I would have been lumped into, you know, there'd be 33,001 denominations. Okay? But you still do the math. <laughs> that leaves 10,000 Christian denominations. No matter how we'd like to try to pare that down, we've, we're divided. We've, we've got some divisions. And some of those are more friendly than others. Why do we do that? Well, it's because sin in our hearts. The sin of partiality is where it starts. And James gets into this in a minute, but first let's dive into the actual example that he gives. It's not one about race or technology or church denomination, but the simple and timeless one of wealth. Okay, rich and poor, haves, haves, nots. It's pretty easy thing to see. There is a distinction, right? There is actually someone who has more wealth than someone else. So it's not that there is a difference. It's how we view it and how we treat these individuals and the reasons why. So James goes on to point out uh, that this just doesn't make any logical sense. It doesn't make any sense why we do what we do, let alone spiritual sense. So beginning in verse 5, let's read this together. Listen, my beloved brothers, that's that phrase again, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are you not the rich ones, or are not the rich ones those who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, first of all, this is not a specific problem to early first century Christendom. Um, it's still a problem today. Prosperity gospel feeds this problem. It's just as rampant today in Christendom um, as it was back then. But before we dive into it super far, um, I just want to point this out. Probably goes without saying, but James is using something called a generalization, which is a sweeping statement that you make from specific cases. Um, meaning, these things are generally true or generally the way things go, not always. It's the same tactic Jesus uses in the Gospels. It's almost the entirety of the book of Proverbs. Okay, This is nothing new. And I, I say that because... For those of you in the room who have a, a comfortable salary or you built up a nice nest egg, um, don't just immediately think, I'm a terrible Christian because I have wealth. Okay, that is not the point of this. That is not where we're going. Um, these things are generally true, but God used the wealthy in Jesus' day just as much as he did the poor. Um, Joseph of Arimathea, Zacchaeus, Nicodemus, Lydia, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they probably all had money. Um, and Old Testament examples abound all the more. Remember, too, that the comparison isn't very easy for us to make 
Because in their day and age, there was no middle class. Okay, there was rich and there was poor. It was a visible difference. Hence why the example he gives. It was designer clothing or rags. There was no they shop at Target. Okay, there's no middle ground. Right? There is the, the ultra elite and the poorest of the poor. And so there was, you know, you, you bathed, as in you bathed once a week, or you bathed once a year, maybe. Okay? Like that's the, the distinction he's trying to point out. So there were some rich and powerful people in the Bible who had great faith. And there's a wonderful example of that. The Roman centurion, okay, Jesus described in Matthew 8, a man who had servants and soldiers under his authority, probably a very wealthy and powerful individual. He tells Jesus, just say the word and I know my servant will be healed. Um, But he, he says, look, I'm not even worthy for you, Jesus, to come under my roof, but I know how these things work. If you speak the word, it's gonna happen. And what does Jesus say about this man? Matthew 8.10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So James is using a generality here. Generally speaking, God has made the poor rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Being poor isn't a guarantee of being in his kingdom. Being rich in faith is. But faith isn't limited to the poor. However, it is a condition, being poor, does um, give you more ability or, or more freedom to grow and develop in faith. Because if you're lacking, it's easier to learn to trust in someone else than if you have everything and you can just trust in yourself and your own resources. Okay? I think we belabor that plenty. I apologize. Verse 6. And seven, they, con- they continue that train of thought, basically saying, isn't it the rich who drag you into court? Again, the idea being you never want to go against uh, a company with billions of dollars to throw around in a lawsuit um, because you're likely going to lose. That's why we need public defenders, right? Because we don't have money. We often can't afford the fancy lawyers who have teams of people pouring through case files looking for loopholes. Anyone who's seen an episode of Law and Order can work that one out. But again, a generality. Lastly, that he says, their rich are those who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. Anyone who's worked a day in construction or retail knows rich or poor can blaspheme the name of Jesus um, equally, right? like in with, with frequency um, in, in, in any moment's notice. But that said, it's the ones who do it over television or through music or in government, places where they seem to have the loudest voice against the name of Jesus. Those are the ones in the wealth and power positions to do that. Again, generalities. So what in the world... James is asking, why would you be treating them with favor? It doesn't make sense. In fact, most of the sin that we do just doesn't make any sense. But all that's to, to make a point that we come to. It's the, it is the, the crux here, verse 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James refers to this as the royal law according to the scriptures. Remember, Jesus summarized all the laws and the prophets into simply this, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. James says, if you're doing this, you're doing well. Yeah, I'd like to say so. Yes, you would be doing very well. And it's a reminder to me This command to love your neighbor as yourself is a reminder to me that real love has very little to do with emotions or feelings. We say love, and I immediately think of emotional or attractional love um, that you might have towards a spouse or that that love towards um, our children. Uh, The way I feel about my wife or even the way that I might feel about my son. My son walked up to me the other day. I had a really hard day. I'm at work, and I came home after a ridiculously long day. I walked through the door, and he's just grinning ear to ear. And I don't know what the look was on my face, but I, I was literally just dumbfounded. Like, why are you so happy? Don't you know what a terrible world we live in? Why are you smiling? Like, that was, that was like, how, why in the world are you so happy, child? And then I realized it was because I walked through the door. Like, my wife actually had to clue me in on that. She's like, it's because you're home. Like, he's so, so excited you're home. And I was like, oh. <laughs> like, my heart was just like, I'm, I'm undone. I will do anything for you. Like, ask me. <clears throat> right? And that, that emotion that, that we feel, it's like, we think of that like, that is love. I love you so much. <clears throat> now, have any of you felt that way? When you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror. Because if you have, you're, you're in a spot of trouble. I have a great psychologist, psychiatrist who I've got the number two. I can help you with that. No. <clears throat> we, 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 tend, we look in the mirror and usually it's just like, it's like, well, hello again, friend. <laughs> you know, let's see what we can do about this monstrosity I see before me. But what do we do? We take out the, the brush, we get the toothbrush out, we put on the deodorant, we, we go through the steps for me, like the beard comb and the oil, you know, like, like and maybe it's the razor or whatever, like the, the tweezers, we, we go to work. Why? Why do we go out and get food after this and drink? Because we love ourselves, right? We care for ourselves. Emotion doesn't really come in, in, into that, not, not on that level, hopefully not. Right? But we do, we love ourselves and we care for, for ourselves. And it says as we should love each other, as, or we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And some of us take care of ourselves really well. But the energy and time and ultimately the love that we love ourselves, we ought to love our neighbors with. Do you like your neighbor? Doesn't matter. Do you like yourself? Some days, more than others. But it's the same question that the lawyer asked Jesus before he gets into the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. We studied this not too long ago. 
The fellow stands up and he says, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers the question with the question. And he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer, knowing the law, probably better than most, answers, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you answered correctly, do this and you will live. But apparently the lawyer felt convicted of that because immediately the text says, verse 29, he, desiring to justify himself to Jesus, asks, and who is my neighbor? And why is he asking that? Because he wanted to limit his scope. He wanted to to narrow it down. Can I just be the neighbor to the rich guy who will get me places? Or to the, the guy who likes the same sports teams as me? Or to the gal who wears those fancy designer clothes? Or to the person uh, who has the same political party as me? If I can just narrow this down, who that command applies to, then maybe I can, I can figure this out. I'll work this out. I'll, I'll justify myself. And so what does Jesus do? He gives a parable of the most polarizing, extreme example that his culture would allow. The Jews did not like Samaritans at all. The Pharisee and the Levite are like the ultra-elite. So the Pharisee and the Levite, they walk right on by this guy who was wronged and left for dead. And it was the Samaritan who steps in and did what was right. The closest parallel I could think of this off the top of my head um, for our immediate culture would be something like replacing the Pharisee with uh, a pastor at Crossroads Church. And uh, replace the Levite with uh, a parishioner, maybe one of the the blessed servants of kids' ministry. <laughs> like, they are just incredible. Okay, like, and you, you, you replace them in this story, and they walk right on by a guy who's beaten and left for, for dead, essentially, because they're, they're late to a, you know, church meeting. But then, Gavin Newsom walks by. And bandaged his wounds, paid for his care, nursed him back to health. And that was the first example that came to my mind. Some of you found that funny, some terribly offensive. And where you fall on that, including myself and why I thought that, is very telling as to our heart's condition. Okay, But if you really fulfill the law, if you really fulfill the law, love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And then we ask the question, but how bad is that really? Well, James goes on and he compares it to what? Adultery and murder. Wow, okay. It doesn't matter what it is. If you transgress the law, you're guilty of the law. Verse 10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become transgressors of the law. 
So you notice James takes us to the big ones, the big ten. Ten commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, seven and six. And for some reason, we treat the law with contempt as Christians, because like James, we say we're under the law of liberty, or as Paul puts it, we're not under law, but we're under grace, or the law of Christ. But if you read that and think Christians therefore have no obligation to the law, then you're delusional, and you have not read the scriptures or understand anything about the the New Testament and what Paul was teaching. There is no salvation in the law, but there is great practicality and, yes, obligation to uphold the law as Jesus, Paul, and James did and commanded us to do. And by James bringing up murder and adultery here, he tries to get rid of any notion of things like partiality or gossip or slander or coarse jesting or disobedience to parents or disobedient to government or any other number of things. I I drove by and as as you're driving by this way, I saw a sign that said no fireworks. And immediately in my heart, I was like, where can I find a firework? Right, like... There's just this thing inside of us. It's like, I, I want to rebel against whatever. It's just, there's a sign, so now I want to rebel against it. Like, that's part of our culture. Maybe it's just me. I'm just a terrible person. But, <clears throat> no. If we do these things, if, if we, we look at these things and we, we find them perfectly acceptable and somewhat like, wink, wink, it's not that bad of a thing to do is in some way a lesser transgression against the God we say we serve and the command to love our neighbor as ourself. Everyone in the room is offended now, right? Please tell me. You ready? Okay. The subject of racism is still high on everyone's mind right now. And it is sickening the things happening across our country in towns, amongst friends and family. Just one more opportunity for us to divide and cause strife between each other. There's a lot I'd like to say on it as it relates to this study and just in general. But I want to share this with you. I've seen one sliver um, of hope, one silver lining in all of this for Christians something that the overwhelming majority of people in America will agree on right now is that racism is wrong. You might be thinking, wow, Dan, you're brilliant. Big thoughts I have, okay? No, but think about it. Do you know how very few things our world takes as an absolute truth and morality? Very few things. It's hard for us to get 50% of our population to agree on anything. But right now, and I'm sure there, it's not, it's not in the entirety of the population. Sadly, there's, there's going to be people that are just straight up demonically blinded in this. But why is it that so many people right now will agree 100% racism is wrong? The question is, so why is it wrong? Why is that wrong? Why is partiality on the basis of race wrong? And the Christian has a great answer to that. Great answer to that. 
because our creator made us in his image. And the implications of that, we can walk down, they're numerous, they're beautiful, we could walk down that all day long and explain why it's important to not have partiality on any basis. But the world doesn't really have an answer for that. And yet they're all agreeing right now. And I think that's an open door. I think we can have open dialogue about that. There's so much open dialogue about that right now, and sort of not open dialogue about it right now, but it's it's on everybody's mind and everybody's talking about it. This is an open door. We know why it's wrong. We can connect with people on that and show them to an impartial judge. And that brings us to our last verses. So back to the text, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Speak, act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. In other words, live your life as one who isn't enslaved by the law of sin that we are so very guilty of, but live under the law of liberty knowing we've been set free, not just to do whatever we want, but we've been set free to live as God would ask us to live, free of the bondage of sin and shame and separation from our God who saves us. And how did that happen? Because God shows us great mercy. We deserve judgment, but there was mercy. Grace and mercy are two sides of the same coin. Mercy is not getting something you deserve, i.e. we deserve punishment, but we don't get it. That's mercy. Grace is getting something you don't deserve, i.e. we don't deserve forgiveness, but we receive it. It's grace. Judgment without mercy awaits the one who shows no mercy. And I wonder if James was thinking of Jesus' parable that we also studied not too long ago about the guy who, <clears throat> who owed his master a great sum of money that he would never be able to repay, but he was forgiven. And immediately he went and he found his friend who owed him basically lunch money in comparison, right? And he takes him by the collar, he spits in his face, he throws him in jail until it's paid off. That's the DSV, the Dane Standard Version of that tale. <laughs> You should read the real thing. It's at the end of Matthew 18. The master of that wicked servant hears what happens and takes that evil servant and he throws him in jail until he pays his unpayable debt. That's a big warning. And that that parable ends with a specific warning from Jesus where he says, Matthew 18, 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Is there someone in your life right now who needs to receive mercy from you? What mercy have you received from God? It far outweighs anything, even the most horrible of things that could have been done to you or me. And I say that knowing some terrible things that have been done to you and me. It pales in comparison to what we have done against our God, the Lord of glory. And if you are a Christian, you have taken mercy. You've taken the mercy of God. Why would you do that? For a number of reasons, surely. But one in particular, that you love yourself. 
that you recognize without taking God's mercy, you would be crushed under the weight of our sin and the penalty for that. And if we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, if we have received God's mercy, we need to be able to give it. No, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve grace. Yes, they deserve punishment. We all do. But our judge, and we're very hesitant to see God as judge anymore, but make no mistake, biblically, he is every bit our judge as he is our savior. He will judge without partiality. And we want to be like him. We must do the same. No, it's not easy. I'd say it's completely impossible without the Holy Spirit's help. And we must call on the Holy Spirit to show us areas in our lives where we failed in this, been failing at this, and ask him to help us repent and actually do just that, actually repent. It's what Jesus, our Lord of glory, has been asking us to do from the first time he started teaching. Let's honor that request and become doers of the word, not hearers only. And so let's end where we began, James 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, you are good and your word is good. Even when we clearly prove that we are not. But you love us, you forgive us, you have more grace and mercy than we could, we could ever call upon. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. And it's not just because we love ourselves, God, but because you love us. And your love is far greater than anything else in this world. But Lord, we ask you for help in this. Would you Soften our hearts. Help us to, to show no partiality and do the impossible in that. And to love our neighbor regardless of, of the differences we, we might see in them. Regardless if those differences are real or not. Show us, empower us, help us to love each other as you love the world as you love us. So we love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.